Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Data-Driven Podcast, where we peel back the layers of the tech world, one bite at a time. Today, we're diving into the heart of innovation, customer success, and the art of doing big things in the tech realm. Our guest is none other than Luke Diaz, the visionary founder of DBT Ventures and a maestro of turning startups into success stories. Luke has a Midas touch, transforming companies from their humble beginnings to powerhouses with over $100 million in annual recurring revenue. Luke is a veritable oracle of the tech age. So, if you're as excited as a processor executing a new algorithm to learn how to scale your business, predict the future with data, or simply want to hear from one of the leading minds in the industry, you're in the right place. Let's boot up this conversation and see where the data takes us. Without further ado, let's welcome Luke Diaz to the show. Hello, and welcome back to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emergent fields of data science, artificial intelligence, and data engineering. And as luck would have it, our, my world's favorite, my most favoritist data, data engineer in the world has rejoined this call. Today has been kind of an odd day. It's February 13th where we're recording this. And while it's not a Friday, it has that Friday the 13th kind of vibe. Right, Andy? Yes, sir. So, yes, uh, sir. Sorry about that. No, no worries. No worries. Um, <laughs> we had some kind of brownout. So, but I am. So, a, and I'm excited. Yes. Because of we, our guest. Me too. So we had a, uh, all sorts of things happen today, but I want to get the show done before something else happens today. <laughs> With us today, <laughs> we have Luke Diaz, founder of DBT, uh, Do Big Things Ventures, which has an amazing portfolio of angel and venture uh, uh, capital investments uh, and advisory of tech, software, and other innovation-focused uh, companies. Uh, he himself is an expert in customer success, tech support, uh, software, and SaaS trends. Um, and uh, he has helped three startups grow from single-digit millions to 100 uh, million-plus ARR. And um, he releases regular research through uh, thousands of subscribers exploring focused uh, topics such as customer success, how to improve your business writing, uh, and building a churn prediction model with machine learning, uh, as well as how VCs or venture capitalists uh, uh, establish track records of success. So thank you for joining us, Luke. I know that you had some kind of uh, sore throat, then you got better, and then... <laughs> yeah, I, I'm feeling a lot better. Frank, Andy, big fan of the show. Honored to be here. I uh, really appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you. We're, we're very glad to have you, and we're able to get through this. So... Um, the first question is, what is a venture capitalist, right? So, you know, there's a lot of people, we work in technology, that term is thrown around a lot. I have a college buddy of mine who calls himself a venture capitalist, but he does real estate. So clearly it's more than just tech, although <laughs> um, uh, tech is clearly kind of, um, when people say the word, that, that's the context. But tell me, what exactly is a venture capitalist? Yeah, that's it's a great question. I'd say the definition has shifted over the years. I I, I just uh, I think we owe a debt of gratitude to Sebastian Malaby, who wrote recently published uh, the Power Law, which I, I think is basically the canonical uh, book that has the best all-encompassing research on the space. So if if any of your listeners want to go deeper 
Um, it's definitely been the most recommended book to me this year, The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby. But I think at the simplest level, it's a person who's uh, giving money to startups. You know, you, you invest in small companies and you hope they get big. And this trend started in the 60s and it really took a lot of different shapes and formats over the years uh, with governments playing a different role and partnership structures changing the face, activists versus passive. So there's been a lot of dynamics, but the same the trend, the, the baseline has remained the same. Giving giving money, investing money in small companies, hoping they get big. Um, so that's that's what I do. That's that's one of the spaces I, I love to learn and, and play in. Very cool. Um, yeah. Clearly, it's not just software. Like it could be anything. But so so thank you for that definition because when he when he suddenly declared himself one day a venture capitalist, I was like, dude, you're in real estate. And he's like, yeah. you know, it's more than just dot com. This is during a dot com kind of thing. Like it's right. more than dot com stuff. So um yeah. what exactly to you, what is customer success, right? Because you know, I worked at Microsoft, I work now at Red Hat, and and there's this whole thing about mm -hmm. customer success. And I've noticed that is also a term that I wouldn't say it gets overused, but I think different companies have different terms. Like what when you what does customer success mean to you? Like what, how would you define it? That's a great question. I've, I've been reflecting on that a lot because the space has changed so much over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, if I had to pick one word to kind of encapsulate the entire function and why companies are willing to spend 10, 20% of their revenue on the function is, is value. They are the owners of value being achieved and communicated to the customer. Uh, the value is like the, and, and there's art and science to that, right? So they are the mm -hmm. people, they are the team that is responsible for get, often getting teams, uh, new customers implemented, making sure they use it, overcome, overcoming structural political things to like get this software integrated into a company that's never used, usually in most cases, never used your software before. So. Um, I think of value as the North Star, the guiding light of the function. But that said, it's taken a lot of different shapes and sizes and, and roles and responsibilities have shifted. But the, the thing a lot of your listeners probably remember is like when software as a subscription became a thing, we needed a function or a team. The problem was like, you don't just buy the software once on-prem and forget about it and hope, you know, hope it renews. Like these, these teams have to use the software to get value. And they have to rebuy in the subscription model, which precipitated a need for this ongoing account management, but also usage and adoption component. So I think that was like the, the change in the landscape that really precipitated the need for customer success. And uh, we could talk more about how to, you know, what that means on a more detailed level, but that's how I think about it. Yeah, my, my first exposure to the term was when they had this role, this is maybe like eight years ago at Microsoft, they had cloud solution architects. But then, then one day they said, no, 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 you're customer success architects now. And a lot of us looked at each other like, so we're we gonna do anything different? And they were like, no, 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 the job's the same. <laughs> okay, why the change? And they're like, well, cause we're a cloud company now. Okay. <laughs> Like that was my exposure to the term. Like I get it, right? I understand the reasoning for it, but it was just kind of yeah. like how I was introduced of it 
um, introduced it, it would, would have fit in very well with the theme of the day of just extreme weirdness. Um, but, yeah. um, um, yeah. So, so like, what, what are your thoughts? Like, how do you measure customer success? Right. You know, the, the way we were measured, um, uh, was kind of, you know, did they adopt the platform? Are they spending? Is, are there other metrics like customer satisfaction? Like what, it seems like it's more than a one dimensional type of thing. And that, you, you raise a great point, Frank, because it is multifaceted. I think the role of a leader it is, is really clarity. And so where customer success leaders, I think, really need to step up is make sure that that scoreboard is super clear. Because if you're telling the team 10 things are important, guess what? None of them are that important uh, right. because we have this finite resource of time. And so the way I think about it is I love setting goals, performance, and comp based on lagging indicators and then managing to the leading indicators that are most correlated to that outcome. So like for teams I've managed in the past, the vast majority of their bonus was driven by gross, uh, gross retention. Keep the dollars that we know, we've seen some pretty high customer acquisition costs over the last 10 years. You are, you, companies are spending a ton of money, 50, 100, 250K to acquire a customer you have to keep that customer for years to make the unit economics make sense. And so if you have a leaky bucket, man, and you've seen a lot of companies over the last few years get turned upside down because unit economics weren't scalable, uh, weren't sustainable. Um, so gross retention, dollars up for renewal is the denominator and like how much of those dollars renewed. That is, in my view, the clearest way to measure the outcome of a high performance customer success team. There's a lot of ways and strategies you could take to get to that outcome. That's where I think management and leading indicators come in. You talk about, are the customers happy? Are they using the product? But customers vote with their dollars. And so I yeah. wanna make it super clear to any team I lead or founders that I back that retention is the name of the game. Cause if you don't get that right, you, you, you just have this treadmill you have this high CAC, poor unit economics. Sorry, you could bleep that out. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't have a good business. So I try and anchor on gross revenue retention uh, as the, the scoreboard. So a lot of our, I say not a lot, all of our interviews are super cool, but not all of them are directly applicable to me in my small boutique business. So when you see me take out Andy's memory and and a writing device that that's applicable. So this that's is helping your, me. Some. That's your EMM uh, external memory module. That's me. So I am taking notes, Luke. Those are two good things. First, that's, the book, the recommendation of the book, but I love the math. And uh, if you give me a numerator and a denominator and it resonates, I'm writing that down. Yeah. World-class retention is typically uh, 95%. Nice. So if you got a million dollar business over the course of that year, you're looking at churn, the inverse of 50K. That's a lot of revenue to retain, right? Yep. Um, so you're going to renew $950,000 of that million. You're in best in class. And there's, there's a second tier that's kind of like 90 to 95. But if you get that right, man, and then you, you start layering on products, the whole revenue curve just goes stratospheric. Uh, it gets really, really exciting when you have a strong 
foundation and a, and a non-leaky bucket. I like yeah. that. Right. I Love like the leaky, leaky bucket, bucket analogy. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> I'll take a Monster Energy drink. Um, but um, <clears throat> I'll cheers no, with I mean, my liqueur. There you go. There you go. Um, they closed school here, so like to deal with all the kids, I need the extra caffeine. Um, um, fair, fair enough. But uh, so I mean, I would imagine. So so this seems like you know. This team, you've grown three startups from single-digit rev- million revenues to 100 million plus annual recurring. Um, clearly, this has to be a factor in that, right? Like you, you have to get this customer retention right, right? If you want to scale, is that a is that a fair assessment? It is, and it's a leading. It's it's one of the criteria that most. Uh, series A, Series B venture capitalists are looking for because they don't want to they don't want to invest in a lot of them got burned in these maybe they're high growth but you got this leaky bucket where customers are just flooding out the back door right. and that's not good because those customers talk to other people it's like oh yeah we turned that we we terminated that product so it it really doesn't work unless you get those those numbers right retention in the in the 90 90 to 95 plus percentiles yeah and it's become kind of a a core metric for anyone that's looking at unit economics and the ability of this business to do something big uh yeah so i would say yeah huge plus one on that as a an anchoring metric but then the the more fun part of the job in my opinion like it's really easy to run numbers at the end of the quarter or the end of the year that's easy but the the more interesting challenge is how do you get there? Right. Like how do you, how are you structuring your onboarding process? How do you know if like, what is a, how are you defining a successful onboarding? A lot of these startups I talk to, they, they don't know. They're still figuring that out. How do you communicate value? You know, you start up, you build a, a software or any business to solve a problem. You have a strong hypothesis, but then you need to validate like, okay, here's how we think about the return on investment. And by the way, most enterprises are looking for a, um, a software investment that has an ROI of five to seven X. So if you close this hundred K deal, they're looking for 500 to 700 K of value to even rationalize renewing with you. So how do you, that's a big number. Like you're invested, like we better be able to show some business impact. Uh, and that, that gets into the, the products capabilities, uh, the impact on the business, the user workflows, and ultimately the P&L for how you're helping them either drive revenue or save costs, right? It's, this is all simple stuff. It's really easy to get abstract and hand wavy in right. software, but like it all goes back to the numbers, right? Uh, so that I try and stay grounded in that way. Right, and as the cost of customer acquisition goes up, this becomes even more important, right? We're not talking about you know, somebody who's gonna drive by the, the local convenience store and pick up you know, a cup of coffee and a donut, right? I mean, this just, <laughs> You know, I'm sure they have numbers too, but the math is completely different in terms of what the incentives are. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes Interesting. Well, so what, what, what are the things that that? Because I'm sure in our audience we have a lot of people who are either entrepreneurs, they run kind of boutique shops, shops themselves, and maybe they're thinking about, uh, you know, I was going to call you out by name, Andy, uh, but but <laughs> I, I know I know for a fact we have a lot of people who are independent contractors here, and some of them I think are pondering the idea of. You know, hey, I'm selling my time for money. It'd be nice if I can make a platform where I can take some of that and kind of scale. Like, and I, so I think this is an interesting 
opportunity to figure out like, well, you know, how do you, once you hit the single digit millions, obviously, you know, what's really the secret, right? How do you, that's a hundred X scale. It's two orders of magnitude. Like, how do you, if you had to pick the top three important things, what would they be? And I just want to make sure I understand the question. You're talking mm -hmm. along that path from, let's call it a million bucks, which is a milestone in and of itself, right. but getting to that hundred, hundred uh, million revenue, what are like the, from the customer success perspective? Right. The difference between, but the difference between comfortably buying a um, Mercedes or two to buying a Bugatti, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh -huh. Like, so it's like, what, what, how do you get there? Right. Um, I'm just I'm like curious, like, what are the top three important things? Like if you were advising somebody like what, what really matters? Cause there's a lot of noise in business. And I think the people that are successful can filter out the signal from the noise. Um, yeah. What are your, what are the kind of the three main levers to kind of, filter out signal from noise let me let me ruminate on that uh because okay. as you mentioned i've seen that ride three times and have been fortunate enough to play a small part in that in that outcome in that growth uh, i'm trying to now kind of parse for common denominators that mm -hmm. enabled that um i think customer success as one of the fastest growing functions in Silicon Valley in in the space, I think we do take a little too much credit sometimes because at the end of the day, the product is, that is what's being bought and the, and the product has to be there. So I would, I would start with the inherent capabilities of the product itself, put away all the, the post sales customer, kind of like my world that I operate in. If the product is not solving a valuable problem um, and people aren't willing to pay for it and it's not a lot better seven X, you know, the, there's different data on how much better it needs to be than the next alternative, mm -hmm. kind of like Ubers versus taxis, then you're not really in the arena to even get to a hundred million. It, you might just be building another high CAC inefficient leaky bucket, you know, like right. you might be able to, ram software into these companies but the the product's value and the strength is is what creates that enduring competitive advantage so i i would look for the the nature of the product the user mechanics how frequently it's used uh is it is it a product that you can habituate the users uh, as they adopt this new thing is it something you use once a month or is it something you need to use every day so like mm -hmm. the usage frequency and the perceived value are key indicators of like that product strength okay. the second is a willingness to invest in customer success a lot of founders think the product can and should kind of just you know if you build it they will come <laughs> <laughs> but the, but the reality is, is you start growing and you start getting some traction, 1 million, 2 million, 5 million. Now you're starting to think about moving up market where it's not selling a small, smaller ticket item to an SMB or a company that's pretty nimble and can adopt your software. But you're talking to a collection of humans that now need to now need to adopt something new. So now you're talking about change management, process mapping, 
hey, how does this software fit into your existing workflows? And the complexity gets higher. A lot of CEOs look at their head, you know, right now is a common annual planning time. A lot of companies have their fiscal year end in January. And they're like, man, customer success could cost 20% of our revenue. And they're like, ah, I don't want to make that investment. I've seen it a hundred times because it's a, it's a big investment to have these humans try and figure out the complexity of working with these new larger customers and getting them to adopt a new habit, a new software, a new workflow. And so that would be like linchpin number two is founder willingness to invest in the function, uh, like best in class success uh, at Salesforce, for example, is like nine to 10% of revenue. So they're running a really efficient machine. They also have a lot of revenue. So the denominator is pretty big, uh, but their customer for life programs, typically nine to 12% of revenue. And that's considered hyper efficient. Mm. But when you're small and you're just trying to go out there, bag some big deals and help them out, it's not uncommon to see customer success cost 20% of revenue. So on a 5 million AR business, are you willing to invest a million dollars to hire, uh, you know, eight people and some managers to like take on this challenge? Maybe not. And then you're kind of setting the stage for those customers to not get the help they receive. So that's like kind of linchpin number two after product strength is, is the will willingness to even invest. And then you asked for a third one. I might need, I've seen, there's so much variability that comes into play with market dynamics, the macro, the competitive space. So I'm not sure I have a clear third one that is ab abstractable. But those two, I think are important right there because I think the second one, I think kind of now, well, the first one, if you don't have the first one, the second one's sure. irrelevant, right? Like, but like the whole willingness to expand up to 20%, I mean, I, that's a tough pill to swallow for a field that most people, if you ask them what customer success is, they'll yeah. probably give you a blank look or, as they say in LLM world, hallucinate an answer, right? Because, um, <laughs> like, like even, even I'm like, like, I only know, I only got deep into this because as we were doing our planning for my day job, we were like, you know, customer success. And the guy basic, the guy who runs it kind of explained his pitch. And I was like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. You know, but prior to that conversation, I don't know. I would have been like, I don't know. You want twenty percent? You want, you know, like if you were a five million dollar company, I mean, that's, yep. you know, maybe not in the Bay Area, but that's still a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> a million dollars will buy will buy you a house around here. Um, yeah. But um, sorry, I Andy, thought that was off. a no. That's okay. I thought that was a really uh, good analogy um, and bringing the numbers home. Um, right. Being a person, you know, I'm. You know, being a person in business for myself, I'll just say it that way. The um, and, and from that perspective, I'd I'd like to ask, um, how do you deal with folks who may be reluctant to engage with any form of venture capitalist person, simply out of fear of the unknown? They they don't understand it. They you know they've maybe they've heard some horror stories of, you know, mm -hmm. things deals going south and bad outcomes or they've and, seen shark tank right and they're like well you know. i mean you know and i mean the risk aversion i think it, i think everybody has some of some bit of that and certainly you know the 100x upside yeah i'm all in 
you know, on that piece of it. But I'm wondering what's I don't understand. Permit. I'm I'm just going to confess. I don't understand all of the mechanics of DC deals. I imagine there are many variations, and there has to be a certain amount of trust with the actual firm yeah. or the venture venture capitalist. So, how would you address? You can you can talk to me. How would you address my fears of the unknown? It, I think it's a very valid point. Um, when numbers are involved and like you're a founder, you're talking about the equity of your company, you know, mm -hmm. uh, someone's coming into this room and, and you're going to, you're going to lock arms and be financially entangled. It's, it's, it's not dissimilar to a marriage in some regards. Cause like you're going to be working together. You're not sleeping together, but you're, you're working really closely together on the financials and you have a, a very vested shared interest. Sure. Um, but you kind of hit the nail on the head. It, it is a relationship business. You, you guys have interviewed some some great VCs and some in the space. So um, I would encourage your listeners to re-listen to some of those episodes as well, which I found really valuable. Um, the things that I think scare people are the, like you mentioned, the horror stories. So everything's great when the market's up, but where right. <laughs> it's kind of like when when someone passes away or there's a divorce, that's where stuff hits the fan, right? Um, yeah. So you start to hear stories of dirty term sheets, which basically have uh, these pref stacks or these like liquidity preferences, which basically just means like I get my money out before other people. And I actually might get more money out than other people. They, yeah. they kind of, they de-risk the deal by exerting leverage mm. to minimize their downside. And, and that screws other people, right? Like that's less money for, and, employees, the founders, and subsequent investors. So dirty term sheets are, are something that are a tactic I've never employed. I'm usually a little earlier. So there's some standardized agreements that thankfully, uh, thanks to Paul Graham and the team at Y Combinator, they've put out these simple agreements for future equities, uh, like a basic safe agreement, which I've yeah. used dozens of times where it's clean, it's founder friendly. There's a ton of these being populated. Yeah. So I would caution you to look at like the, this, I would encourage you to look at like the numbers in the sense of like dirty term sheets and pref stacks. They're exceedingly rare. Like I've you. only seen them in less than two or 3% of the companies or deals that I've worked where there was really a VC trying to, to leverage, you know, and yeah. have kind of an angle. <laughs> My question to that VC would be like, why do you want, if you believe in us so much, why do you, why are you trying to uh, like change the nature of the dynamics? Yeah. Um, cause, cause the best VCs just want you to be successful. They're not planning for the divorce. They're not making you sign a prenup. Uh, right. So anyway, that's just, uh, just one thing on the, the term sheets where I think it's, it can be perceived as a little bit predatory. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think most founders need venture capitalists. I, I think I encourage, like, if you don't need my money, please don't take it. More money for founders is better for you. Do, don't delete it. It's, it's almost like glamorized a little bit. Like, yeah. these are just people writing checks that, and, and they have an amazing network. So like, there's really smart people, but like, they're just writing checks and joining board meetings. So I would almost knock them down a peg because the okay. founders are the ones creating value and changing the world. It's, it's not the venture capitalists. So I would almost I would challenge the premise 
of okay. that. I don't think most founders even need it. Um, I'd much rather see them bootstrap. Well, that, that's um, an interesting you take, have, you know, as a, as a founder, that's, that's an interesting uh, thought. And I, I've not seen, you know, and I guess that's not what VCs lead with, you know, when they're, when they approach or angel investors, that's not what they, they first lead with. So it's refreshing uh, actually to, to hear that. But the other side of it, I wouldn't uh, discount, even though I know less about the process than I, I would, I would need to know before, you know, I participate. But even then, I know the value of a network and I know the value of advice and, and having a broad experience across many different businesses in the field and mm -hmm. being able especially to look at something dumb that I'm doing and go, you know, Andy, that's dumb. And, you know, let me tell you this other horror story about this founder who did yeah. exactly what you're doing and then they lost everything. Yep. And, you know, that's that advice I think would be valuable as well. I mean, I won't say invaluable, but it's not nothing. And to have that right. described as you did early in terms of a relationship and being arm in arm and, and working for the success of mm -hmm. the venture, because that makes perfect sense. Cause then everybody wins. Mm -hmm. Well said. And the, um, I think back to my days at Optimizely where um, benchmark led our a round and Peter Fenton, who's a fairly well-known investor, he's on the board at Twitter and Yelp, he joined our board. And he was very helpful and insightful. Mm. And you know what, he, he didn't offer advice, but he asked really good questions. And mm. I had him come speak to my team at an offsite. And uh, we're expecting this long, eloquent talk. He just went up to the, the whiteboard, you know, and he wrote, executive visibility equals budget. And we talked about this concept that if like the executives and your customers, if they don't know who you are, you don't have budget. And so he has these, to your point, Andy, he has these insights that can lead to really interesting things. And he asks really good questions. And so the value is less in the money and more about like the insights and the questions. What are the unknown unknowns you're not thinking about? That's where I think VCs can oh, yeah. maybe, maybe impact the trajectory more. Yeah. Well, I, I love great that. Call out. Yeah. I, I love that. Cause I, I say this, because it's true, I, I don't know what I don't know. And if I'm a solopreneur, like I am, it's like I, mm -hmm. I am stuck here unless I have good friends. Mm -hmm. And I do. I have Frank and Amazing. I have a number of really close friends who are in positions all over in different companies. One, um, one good friend who was an early guest on the show um, about almost two years ago, got his MBA from um, from the Sloan School at MIT. And he's gone on to gain experience and he's reached out, you know, a number of times. In fact, I, I mentioned, I think in the green room with Frank and I met at this uh, user group meeting in Richmond in late November, 2005. I, I met, we met Nick there as well, the three of us. And so, you know, and, and so Nick's awesome. And, but he has these conversations with me as, as well and knowing each other that amount of time, first off, and then you know, interacting, uh, we partnered a little bit and, and done a little bit of work, kind of know each other's personalities. Mm -hmm. That's been, it. it's not a board, but it's there you what go. I would imagine a good board would be like. Their advisors, mm -hmm. there's, there's more than just a fiduciary interest uh, in this, there's actually love. Uh, you know, we're friends. Yeah. So anyway. Love it. Just throw that Mutual in. The, concern. Um, Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mutual concern. Have you have you heard of a founder named Jeremy Clark? Does that name ring a bell? I haven't. I've seen the name it. on LinkedIn, but 
You're thinking about the car guy, have a lot. Frank. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's funny because he's a he really likes driving fast cars. I don't. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Jeremy Clark, um, I, I bring it up because a lot of your listeners are hustling to build something special and use data-driven insights. This guy started um, a company called WebMerge in 2011, totally bootstrapped. I don't think yeah. he took any outside capital, maybe some friends and family. Um, he built it up to 5 million ARR, very achievable number. And he didn't have a lot of outside advice from boards, but what he was relentless about was listening to the customer feedback. Hey, I want to do this. So his whole feedback, he didn't have a team of advisors or high paid yeah. VCs. He just listened to the customer. Interesting. Fast forward. Okay. So at, when, once he got to 5 million bucks, right thereabouts, he sold to Formstack for $100 million. And he was able to achieve this in, I think, seven years. So he, he's nice. kind of that canonical bootstrapped hustling. If there was a third thing to ask, to add to your first, your earlier question, Frank, it'd be that like yeah. that customer centricity of like, they guide you. Like you don't need a, a VC to tell you what to do. The customer will tell you what you, you know, solve this problem, solve this problem. They got loads oh. of problems. So I'll mention Jeremy Clark and the form stack acquisition of web merge as one of my favorite and most powerful examples yep. of customer feedback and just the what an amazing founder can do well i'll just interject that that's very confirming to me because that's that's how i roll right now on customer stuff it's just they they say what they want i look at it and go yeah yeah and often when they do that uh, uh luke i'll say i'll think of oh my gosh yes we can do that and then we can do this <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. so it is very much a virtuous cycle so yeah yeah cool very cool. Um, so while we're on the subject of kind of being data driven, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> so talk time, to me about it, how does has machine learning kind of like helped in the customer success space in terms of figuring out churn retention? Like, has that has that helped? Is that or is it just kind of a like a, a more hype than than help? I'd say it's more hype at this stage uh, for my function. I, I've definitely seen some interesting use cases, uh, but I'd say the hype far outseeds the business value at the moment. Um, there's two use cases that have really helped me drive performance. One is figuring out churn. So machine learning is really good at taking lots of attributes, um, analyzing them for what's most correlated with churn. But you need a big enough sample size, so you might be at, you know, how many how many things can you train the model on, is is really valuable in the instance of machine learning to reduce churn. That's a use case I do like. We've used uh, I've used XG Boost, which is a Kaggle grade model, and um, also Random Forest, which is another way. It's just another fancy name for a type of model that's trying to figure out something. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, that helped us reduce churn by highlighting accounts that were at risk that we had not known were at risk. So talk about unknown unknowns. Machine learning is really good at raising flags for things that a human might look over. Yeah. Oh, I think this account's fine. Actually, the machine learning model says you're they're actually very risky. Let's talk about that. That's where I've seen value case number one. Value case number two is applying large language models embedded in 
call recording software like Gong, Chorus, the notes that you can get, like you record a call with a customer. The built-in large language models now that summarize the notes are phenomenal. So mm. you just saved your CSM an hour post-call because the notes are almost turnkey. They pull out action items, they pull out key topics, they pull out filler words like, um, yeah, uh, so there's even coaching embedded in the, the software. So Gong and Chorus are the, the best tools I've used that machine learning, like, or in this case, large language models have really had an impact on time, time saving and quality. No, I'll second uh, that. Yeah, I you, use I use Cast Magic to do a lot of the show notes and stuff like that. And it, oh yeah, one of the feet they've added uh, recording as an option and uh, for for do meetings yeah. and it it is science fiction level good. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have a customer that's a publicly traded and you have like a 10Q or one of these public filings that big companies have to to file, you can upload that to ChatGPT four. And actually, they're getting it's. A good, a good CSM should know their account. Mm. One way to do that, hey, upload the S1, or sorry, the 10Q. And I've been impressed with the output of ChatGPT4 and reading an S1. So you can save, you know, 98% of the reading time. Um, so that's another time savings, but I don't know. Maybe there is value in having them read the, Q, the 10Q to, to get deeper versus just getting the topical superficial summary of it. But that's been that's been interesting. Something I'm watching along with like the data analytics tools built into these models. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, Andy pasted the, uh, the 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 preformed questions that we have, um, and um, so the first question is: How did you find your way into into this space? Did you find this space, or did uh, the the space find you? In a past life, I was a hedge fund manager, so I've always been, I've always loved numbers. Um, so I'd say I found a love of numbers when I was uh, at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and I was studying numbers. I was like, I really like spreadsheets. <laughs> so I'd say, I'd say I found numbers. Uh, and then in, when I transitioned into software, I saw like, whoa, this is much bigger than spreadsheets. This is like big data at scale. So then I got interested. Cool. Very That's my quick story. Yeah. That's, so we have second question is what's your favorite part of your current gig? I love being on a Zoom call with a founder I'm meeting for the first time and seeing their absolutely unbridled ambition for they're going to charge at the world and they're going to make a dent in it. And I just, it's something about the human spirit that is, I don't know, it just gives me the goosebumps to this day. And I get really excited when I have the honor of like meeting a founder that is hell bent on making the world a little bit better in their domain. So that gets me pretty, that's definitely my favorite thing. Cool. Uh, so we have three complete the sentence uh, questions. And when I'm not working, I enjoy blank. Man, uh, I love flying airplanes. So I'm, I love oh, flying cool. up in the sky or uh, and also training for triathlons. I do a lot of like triathlon stuff, Ironman stuff. So I'm usually, I love flying and I love swim, bike, run, and uh, and obviously spending time with the kiddos and my wife. Oh. Very nice. 
Uh, the second one is I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank. Man, old school answer. I still think screenshots are one of the most low, like <laughs> screenshotting is one of the most simple technologies that is so pervasively used. And I think it's not talked about enough how amazing just a screenshot tool is used anyway. Anyway, but a more concrete answer is I think stable, stable diffusion models are becoming next level. I, I've seen, I asked my, my three-year-old daughter, hey, Davey, what are you thinking about? She's like, a rainbow unicorn. And I type in, show me, a, you know, create an image of a rainbow unicorn. And we have this like shared album on the iPhone and on the TV. So she, she has all her like stable diffusion images on the TV rotating, just oh, a wow. way to get your kids involved. But uh, I've been so impressed and like videos, the next frontier. I mean, it's insane what visually these models can do now. Um, that's really exciting. It is that, very that is impressive. So cool. Uh, yeah. my my middle child is into anime now and you know so mm -hmm. we will we'll take like clips of him or him playing with the dogs or just a description and say as an anime <laughs> and right. he could kind of create his little little like anime thing um uh it's just i might have uh, to try that with my daughter that's yeah cool. yeah i i i never got into anime but like uh thanks to him i can kind of I only like the one movie Akira from like the eighties, nineties, but like, thanks to him. Yeah. Now I, I know about one piece, demon slayer, Naruto, and there's nice. something else he's watching. Cause it's no day. He's watching it upstairs. I can hear it in the background. So you got us talking about kids now. So, you know, stand back. Uh, my, my baby girl is at uh, Virginia tech now um, doing her, her second semester there. And um, oh, I'll congrats. just I'll That's encourage cool. you. Thank you. I'm so so uh, so proud of her and my other my other daughters and my my two sons as well. They're all proud of them. They're they're awesome. The um the advice I always give dads especially of daughters especially is drink this in, man. Drink because like in two weeks she's going to be driving, <laughs> and it's going to feel <laughs> like that when you when you get uh, there. It's it just it will and. The other just tidbit I share with dads is you're it's normal for you to look back and say, I didn't spend enough time and it's a vicious yeah. trap and it's not true. Yeah. If you spent all of your time, you would still look back and, and wish you, know, you could spend more regret, wish you would have yeah. spent more time. Yeah. So don't fall for that. Trap. I appreciate that. Absolutely. My oldest Thank is you. going to high school in the fall and he's what? ready. I'm not ready. I know, right? I'm not <laughs> ready. For I said step. that to the end of the day. Like, I'm not really ready for him to go to high school either. <laughs> uh, so I said to him, because they had like an open house or whatever. And I'm like, I, I, I can't believe it's high school already. And I'm like, wow. And I looked at him and was like, yeah. no, you're ready. Uh, I'm not ready. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's totally on me. It's a big step. Yeah. Keep us posted. That's a big deal. Um, okay. <laughs> the next complete the sentence is, um, I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank. The technology is not there yet, but when you can talk to someone in an another language and it real time translates in the AirPods. Oh, nice. I feel like that's going to connect humanity at something we've never seen before. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's one that I'm personally just as someone who loves to travel and connect, man, would that be a game changer or what? Sure. Yeah, for sure. And it's almost there. Like it's, it's, it's not, you're right. Yeah. It's not there yet, but you know, it's the closest. Yeah. Yeah. We're close. I mean, it's almost like, um, you know, 
I think we've hit another, you know, Star Trek is often used as cited as an example of like leading indicators of technology. And it's just like, yeah. you know, the other day I was using, we had a previous guest on the previous show that talked about how you can interact with ChatGPT through the Android or iOS app. And, um, like just through voice and like I this is very Star Trek. I could be like, you know, give me an image of this or give me an answer to this. It's not clearly what I was looking for. Can you explain? And it's just it, yeah. if you watch kind of like the next generation, how they interact with the computer is very okay. conversational. And I think we're seeing a lot of that evolve today in ways that not that long ago were impossible. And when you mentioned screenshots, the first thing I had to yeah. learn when I switched from Android to, to Android from iOS was how to do a screenshot. Because I cannot function <laughs> yeah. without the ability to do yeah. a screenshot. Right. Um, yeah. Cool. It's amazing. I'll just I'll just throw this out because I was uh, Frank and I were communicating when he had this leap to conversations with ChatGPT for the app, and he was. I, I know when Frank's excited, and he was very excited about it. And he was like, "This is so mm -hmm. phenomenal!" And I, I'd heard about the functionality, but I'd just been like, "Yeah." I've been typing at it for, you know, a year and it's been typing back yeah. to me. And I thought that was super cool. But hearing the enthusiasm in his voice, I was like, OK, I got to get this. It is game changing. And it was from a previous podcast guest who showed me and I'm like, he did like a live demo. I'm like, no way. <laughs> like and it shouldn't have surprised me in the way that it did, because, you know, voice recognition technology is, you know, not 100 percent, but it's it's good. And then the voice yeah. synthesis technology is, you know, yeah. better than the recognition. That's for sure. Like, it shouldn't surprise me combining these three, but here I was just delighted with the result. So our last, our next thing is we ask guests to share something different about themselves, but we always throw out, remember, it's a family podcast, We're trying to keep our family friendly yeah. rating and all of that. <laughs> of course. Uh, let's see. You know, I heard a quote, I was reading uh, Marcus Aurelius and some of his writings, uh, and there's a quote that really stuck to, with me. It, he said something like, be tolerant of others and strict with yourself. Hmm. So one of the things I'm a little strict with myself on is I track everything I do on this like weird little table. Like at, at the end of the day, I write down, did I work out? Did I stretch? Did I do this? Did I do that? Did and there's like 30 things. So I'm a little... Wow. I kind of micromanage myself just to know, like, do, am I capable of doing the things I say I'm going to do? And so I, tr I have a lot of data on my own personal. So that's a little weird. It's like a little neurotic, but also helpful. We're like, oh, I committed to that, but I didn't do it. That's interesting. Why did I, you know what I mean? So I've been yeah. trying to like use data-driven insights to like reflect okay. on why I do or don't do something i say i want to do as in my quarterly goal setting so you know that that sounds like spreadsheets. It, it sounds like habit tracking but then using yeah. the habit tracker that data and that's something that i haven't heard people speak of before so i'm intrigued and inspired i like the idea myself like i have yeah. a from for my blog and like the the content i produce i have a spreadsheet and that has kept me very honest um, I need yeah. to do that for <laughs> working out and stuff like that too. Like I like that. Yeah, it's really that. helpful with the with the physical stuff. It's really helpful, and yeah, I'll send you I'll send you the a visual if you if you guys and we could compare oh, notes because cool. I feel like it. We're all trying to solve a lot of the same 
challenges. No, in for life. sure. That is very help. That is really helpful in that regard. Sure, I'll cool. share what I what I use, and yeah, be neat, neat to swap I'd love notes. To see it. I actually have my blog uh, spreadsheet off there on that screen there. So <laughs> reminding me that I'm behind cool. schedule. Um, <laughs> so Audible is a sponsor of the show. And you okay. can go to thedigitalbook.com and you can get a free audiobook on us. Do you do audiobooks? Or in, uh, either way, can you recommend a good book that you like? Uh, yeah, two recent ones on the more like inspirational and entertaining i would recommend the trillion dollar coach about bill campbell uh written by three google executives uh eric schmidt among them and uh mr rosenberg and uh the story of bill campbell is one of the most incredible stories of silicon valley so i would point listeners to that for education and entertainment and just like learning about leadership uh practical uh hamilton helmer's um strategy book is off the charts i forget it i read the hard copy i forget if it's on audiobook but it's called seven powers by hamilton helmer i recommend it to every ceo i work with or fund or just meet um and a lot of them have started to already have heard of it but cool. it's basically hmm. how to build a business yeah it's really good excellent awesome yeah so where can people learn more about you and your business? You know, if they want to, I have some book summaries on my website. So if they go to dbtventures.com and they go to library, I think I got like a couple hundred books I've read and some nerdy notes I take because I, <laughs> I don't trust my memory. Uh, I read a book and I'm like, what was that book? So I, do, I, did, I try and distill it down <laughs> into five page, you know, short summaries for mostly for CEOs, honestly, and founders. Because uh, they all tell me they want to read more, but they have not much time. So I'm like, here's a summary. Maybe, you know, maybe it's valuable. Maybe it's not. So yeah, right. DBT Ventures is one way. And then LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, yeah, whatever works. That, those cool. are two spots. Okay. Well, I'll definitely awesome. be connecting with you on LinkedIn. Um, we had a little exchange yeah, earlier and I was, I was so excited because uh, I love it. I love connecting with guests. And I was like, now I've got the link to you and we can connect through that. <laughs> yeah. And me to you. I'm so awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. Hey, thanks for coming. I'm glad we can make it work um, yeah. with weather and health challenges and all that. Right. Uh, kids snow days, you know, we persevered. And thank you very much for your patience. Yeah. And uh, we'll let Bailey finish the show. And just like that, we're at the end of another enlightening episode of the Data Driven Podcast. A monumental thank you to our guest, Luke Diaz, for sharing his invaluable insights and experiences with us. Luke, your journey and the wisdom you've imparted today are nothing short of inspiring, and we're all the richer for it. To our listeners, we hope you've found this episode as fascinating and illuminating as we did. It's your curiosity and passion for knowledge that drive this show, and we're endlessly grateful for your company on this journey through the datascape. Before we part ways, a small but significant request. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback not only warms our digital heart but also helps others discover our podcast and join our growing community. Remember, whether you're scaling the next unicorn, decoding the mysteries of machine learning, or simply curious about the tech world, you're always welcome here, where data meets discernment. Until next time, keep crunching those numbers and questioning the status quo. I'm Bailey, signing off.
Stay data-driven, my friends.